movies, media, they, they would like to portray us as robots. We're not. We're susceptible to the same physiological effects that you have under stress. You yoga, John? You look like you might be a yoga guy. I try, but I just can't relax. But yeah, I've done a little bit of yoga. <laughs> I'm not very good at it, but yeah. Yoga stresses me yeah. out. Yeah. Point of yoga. <laughs> like I mentioned in the presentation, when the FBI leaves you a message, call them back. Mm -hmm. You know, if you Pro don't. Advice. Yeah. Tip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Write yeah. that just, down right yeah. now. Write that down, yep. Van Wilder, <laughs> you're going to want to write that down. Yeah. Yeah. The day and age we live in, I mean, I was taking my son to school the other day, and he said, Dad, today's the day that kid's supposed to come to school with a gun. And yeah, so priority one, stop the killing, right? Priority two, stop the dying. Ultimately, if worse comes to worse and you have to defend yourself, by all means do that. Control the hands, control the weapon. Don't point the gun at anything you're not willing to kill or destroy. Mike Tyson that made the comment that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the yeah. face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Saving lives. 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 By promoting safety and health through education, services, and products, this, this is Utah this, Safety Podcast. Speaking up for safety. Oh, I thought that John was going to introduce us. Yeah, we've started. We're live and on the air. Oh, man. All right. So, well, we're not live, but, you know. Well, this is, uh, uh, I'm John Wojcikowski uh, with the Utah Safety Council. And, uh, you know, my colleague, Michael Stone and Brandon Long, we have traveled out here to daybreak. We're actually at Fire Station 64, which it looks like uh, the building, the fire department and the police department share a building out here in daybreak. Uh, we're actually, I'm told, across the street from the future Salt like bees uh uh stadium is it a stadium in baseball what's it called it's a field yeah. it's a field of dreams in baseball we all <laughs> know that but it is may the 17th we are podcasting the utah safety council speaking up for safety brought to us by the utah labor commission we are excited to be out here at uh, the city of south jordan not to be confused with the neighborhood or the community of daybreak but we're here with matt pennington who is a lieutenant with the south jordan police department uh, matt spoke at our uh, utah safety conference a couple months ago almost two months ago march the 16th or 17th out there at the university of utah and he spoke on uh craze the civilian response to active shooter events and uh, it generated a lot of questions and buzz amongst the uh, the safety community and a lot of employers and just uh, public uh, public citizens. You know, uh, active shooter events are uh, forefront on the mind these days, especially in in safety and uh, you know being safe at our workplaces and in the public. And so we've uh, invited. Lieutenant Pennington to maybe give us a little bit more information and dive a little deeper into uh, active shooter events. So I am now going to uh, hand it off and uh, not literally hand it off because there's nothing really to hand off. The craziest metaphor in podcasting, but we have Michael Stone here, our traffic safety manager uh, with the Utah Safety Council, and uh, he's got 20 questions for Matt. So Matt, I hope you're ready. Glad to have you here. Yep, there are literally 20 questions, you're right. <laughs> so we actually, like John mentioned, we had Matt come out and speak about public uh, shooting and what to do in the event of an active shooter situation. And it was actually one of our most well-received speeches there. Pretty much everybody was saying how it was incredible and how they really enjoyed it and how they want more information. As a matter of fact, 
one of the things I got to talk to you about is there was a specific question from somebody who did attend and they kind of want a little bit more information, some resources and like why you lean toward one thing, such as um, you mentioned that you enjoy people who hide rather than try to bring the fight to them. And he was kind of more curious as to why you want to talk about that. So that's something we're definitely going to get into. But I just got your bio here now. So let's read that. It looks like you began uh, serving as a police officer in 2004. Most notable thing in 2004 for me was World of Warcraft came out and I just sung at the Olympics two years ago and I was in elementary school, so a <laughs> little bit older than me. Turning into a nerd podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Well, that's happens when you have me on Call of Duty tactics. That's a yeah. different, different episode. Yeah. We won't, I mean, unless that's something relevant, I don't think we'll get into Call of Duty tactics anytime soon. You guys doing live drills. <laughs> But looks like you uh, started out with a uh, Weber County Sheriff's Office. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Started in 04 up in Ogden area. I grew up in Ogden and then did come down to Salt Lake, went to school at the U and ended up starting my career back up in Ogden. So. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. It looks like you kind of have like a storied career as far as you went there. Then you came down to South Jordan Police Department. From that, you've been on many different like uh, divisions and task forces. Looks like here you Patrol division, traffic unit, motor officer, investigation unit as a sergeant, member of the South Valley SWAT team yep. from 2008 to 2018 and then back in 2020 again. So kind of done a little bit of everything. So you're kind of the expert when it comes to these things. So what kind of led you to go to specifically active shooter after all these different divisions? Sure. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily the expert in anything. I've just had the opportunity to do this for, I just started year 20 actually. So a uh, variety of things from patrol to, like you mentioned, riding motors as a traffic officer, got into the SWAT world as a young officer here in South Jordan and was ended up finishing as the commander. The first time I was over special services division, I'm now back. And so running that again, mm -hmm. which brings a unique experience. As far as the active shooter stuff goes, I had trained our officers in active shooter response or incident command response just as a, a young trainer just internally for police. And as I got into the special service division the first time around, my one of my responsibilities was school resource officers. And when we think about school resource officers, initially we're there to keep them safe, right? Mm -hmm. And then it has turned into there's a lot of ancillary things. There's a COP element. There's a teaching a class. There's all this other stuff. But ultimately, we're there for safety. And as active shooter has kind of unfortunately continued over the last 20 plus years. For me, it really started Columbine. I was a senior in high school. That's mm -hmm. a catalyst event in active shooter response, law enforcement, and how we train to do business. I remember that. I remember coming back to class from lunch and watching it unfold on television. Start my career in 2004, Trolley Square in 2007. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one of the guys there that was involved, I was friends with at the time that worked for Ogden PD. So again, another connection. We continue to evolve. Um, you got Fort Hood. You know, my ex-wife's cousin was the first one killed in Fort Hood. I am involved in an incident here in South Jordan that we don't know where it would have went, but could have evolved into one of those as well mm -hmm. in 2010. And then you got Sandy Hook. Friends that I grew up with in Ogden lost their little girl in Sandy Hook and friends in Vegas. And so it's just continued to evolve. And what I realized is... When we start looking at the response, you know, we talk about us as first responders all the time, us, police, fire, EMS, but we're really second at best, you know, unless it's a school resource officer that happens to be there during the event, but the public, you guys as the public are first. And so 
I went through Texas State University's alert train the trainer program for civilian response to active shooter events. And what we realized is really training the public what they should be doing is the force multiplier, teaching you how to be safe in the event it happens or what tools should be in your toolbox along with some medical training, right? We In the presentation, you remember the Stop the Bleed mm -hmm. campaign. So if you guys can upfront take actions to keep yourself safe and then in the event that somebody is hurt or injured, how to stop the bleeding, we can save lives. And we've started to see around the country that's happening. Um, this youth today is being trained in lockdown and lockout and active shooter response, which is something even probably you may or may not have went through going mm -hmm. through school. I know I didn't going yeah. through high school and or college, right? That wasn't something I was confronted with until I got into this career. So that's really what made me passionate about it is understanding as a law enforcement officer, we're here to, to help keep the public safe. We're here to deter crime, do all these things. And when you got large scale events like this, what can we do to help us? Because we're responding after it's happened, right? Mm -hmm, for sure. Is, is general first aid taught in high school? I don't know about high school. Um, it should, so it should much, be, no. right? Yeah. I mean, you would think that there'd be some basic stuff like CPR first aid, mm -hmm, but yeah. the, the education system has their own curriculum and requirements. And, yeah. you know, we've partnered with Jordan School District here locally. Mm -hmm. We have a very close partnership. Actually, I was just meeting with a few of them today, and it's a constant discussion with us and the five other agencies that are involved with them on their violent intruder response. They've actually implemented the avoid and I defend model for mm -hmm. middle school, high school level. That's, we trained their entire staff back in 2018 when I was in this role last time and avoid and I defend the same mm -hmm. similar presentation to what you guys saw at the conference. Yeah. If you want to go a little bit more into the avoid it, deny and defend model, cause not everyone probably has seen the sure. YouTube video and I'm sure that that's a resource that they would love to know, you know, stay safe out there. Yeah. So there's a few different uh, acronyms or models out there that you hear. Texas State University and the ALERT program has partnered with the federal government at this point as well. And they give us the option to use run, hide, fight, which had become pretty popular five, 10 years ago. And then they initially came out with avoid and I defend. And the reason I use the avoid and I defend terminology is kind of what we talked about in the presentation more in depth. You know, avoid and run are, are somewhat synonymous, you could say. I would say avoid has a little bit more forethought to it. You're not just aimlessly running, you're avoiding danger. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned the hide thing. I, I don't like the term hide because we respond exactly how we've been trained to respond. And when you're under stress and your frontal lobe stops processing information and you're in survival mode, you revert back to what you've been trained to do. And if I give you a new definition of what hide may mean under stress, you're just going to end up hiding under a desk or in a cubicle. And what we've seen in these incidents is that's going to get you hurt or killed. You're not in a place to to defend or move or do anything else. And so I like the term deny, which is deny access to you, right? You mm -hmm. want to make sure the bad guy, bad person trying to commit violence isn't going to be able to get to you, you know, lock the door, lights out, get out of sight, barricade the door, but you don't stop there. You then look for another way out. And ultimately if worse comes to worse and you have to defend yourself, by all means do that. The reason I don't like the term fight is kind of what you talked about. I don't want you going out and interjecting yourself into something that you could possibly get away from or deny access and keep yourself safe. To take yourself out into the fight is just gonna cause more danger for you, possibly others. You know, some people, especially here locally, are concealed weapon carriers. And if you're out in the middle of that when law enforcement shows up, 
bad things are going to happen. You know, we're responding to an individual with a gun trying to hurt people or, or whatever, maybe knife, other things. And we don't know who's the innocent guy with the concealed weapon out trying to save the day and who's the bad guy. Yeah. So that, that can be tragic, right? Yeah, for sure. It can kind of muddy the waters and people are pulling out their guns as well. And you just know you're going there for somebody with a gun. And so. Absolutely. You know, movies, media, they, they would like to portray us as robots. We're not. We're susceptible to the same physiological effects that you have under stress. Uh, myself, I tend to get tunnel vision. I get auditory exclusion, which is a natural response for your body. And I would like to think I'm a fairly trained individual. So you think about officers that are maybe coming with not as much training or experience and what they're going through. You know, the public has a variety of things. We talk about your initial instinct is fight, flight, and or freeze. And that happens for us too, depending on levels of training, experience, environment. So For sure. And you mentioned earlier um, that you are like the second responders because people are the very first responders. What do they need to do as civilians to kind of help out law enforcement as far as like, is there anything that they should, you know, prioritize first and foremost, obviously not pulling out their concealed carry permit or guns and sure. start firing back, but something else. What do you want to see people doing? First things get safe, right? In the presentation I talk about, get to safety first, avoid it, deny access, get to a point where you're reasonably safe. Then you can call 911 or start relaying information, be a good witness, you know, get as much information to us as possible. So in the event we do have somebody that's trying to help out in the incident, maybe we have a description of what we're looking for and who we're looking for and, and tragedy doesn't happen. Uh, the thing to expect when we show up, hands are dangerous for us. Have empty hands, listen to what we're telling you, follow commands. I'll be up front. You may get treated like a suspect. We may put you on the ground. You may get put in handcuffs until we know you're not a threat or what's going on. That's just a natural response for us. We're trying to keep ourselves safe. Also while coming and stopping violence and making sure you guys are safe. So that may happen um, in the unfortunate event you're injured, expect we're gonna pass over you in that initial wave. That's what we would refer to as a contact team. We go to stop the violence. Uh, credit to the men and women in the fire service, being at the fire station today. They now are training alongside us in a, what we call a rescue task force element they're coming in as kind of the second wave to then help people triage, stop the bleeding, you know, mm -hmm. prevent as much casualty as we can, which is something most of them didn't sign up for. You know, they, they go to put wet stuff on hot stuff, <laughs> not to, <laughs> to go into gunfights. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, that's actually something that just talking to general people about is kind of surprising is that the officers will continue toward the shooting rather than stop and aid them immediately. And yep. whenever I talk to people about that, they're kind of like, well, why? Like I'm, I'm hurt. I need help right now. It's like, why are they doing that? And so they just kind of don't process the fact that, you know, there's still an ongoing situation and that needs to be handled prior to coming back. Yeah. So priority one, stop the killing, right? Priority two, stop the dying. And then we get to the point of evacuation and eventual resolution and mm -hmm. reunification or whatever may be happening at that point. So, you know, a lot of our listeners are safety managers or professional safety uh, uh, people with their organizations. And, and now they're challenged with uh, incorporating some sort of active shooter response safety plan in their workplaces. And, uh, you know, several questions that we get from them is, you know, where do I start? You know, what do I need to consider and, and where do I start in implementing some sort of, uh, you know, active shooter prevention plan or response plan? Yeah, so... There's a lot of companies out there that will, will charge you a lot of money to, to do this. And 
Some of them are good. Some of them aren't so good. There are a lot of free resources out there if you do your research. Uh, one of the big ones that's been around for a long time is the I Love You Guys Foundation. Uh, you can also go to the FBI's website. You can go to Homeland Security's website. You can go to Texas State University's Alert website. And there's a lot of free information on the Avoid and I Defend protocol or lockdown lockout and what that looks like. I believe I Love You Guys Foundation even has some model policies for violence action response, violent intruder response type stuff. So a lot of free information out there if you just take the time to do your research. You can definitely pay somebody a lot of money to come do it for you, though. <laughs> for sure. And as far as something that you would notice prior to somebody shooting up a building, because like these things don't just kind of happen, if that makes sense. Like you mentioned that you're going to see people acting oddly potentially what sort of thing should people be looking for in order to maybe identify have you know maybe a wellness check come by or whatever you recommend yeah so this goes back to kind of the see something say something campaign that the government runs so you got a change in behavior extreme changes in behavior right social isolation they're vindictive they're, they feel like they got to avenge some wrong or whether it's a company the government an, an individual uh, pay attention to any type of broadcast messages, obsession with violence, obsession with active shooter response, drug, alcohol use that is eliciting a, an anger response from that individual. Pay attention to all of that. If you start seeing, you know, four or five, six of those things that show up in one individual, it, it might be time to say something. You know, there's these early warning systems that we'd like to go out and talk to them and realize, hey, they just are having a bad day and they're they're self-medicating and they're not really a threat versus somebody that actually has a plan. These events that have been going on in the last 20 plus years, the majority of them have some type of broadcast. They've said something to somebody this day and age, they're posting it on social media or they're sending out a video or, or whatever they're doing. There's usually a warning sign leading up to it. And if somebody says something early enough, we hope we can intervene ahead of time versus responding to it. So for sure. And what sort of techniques, like if worst case scenario happens, they can't, avoid they can't deny when they do have to defend themselves what do you recommend them doing so like i mentioned just a second ago hands are dangerous right hands are dangerous for us hands are dangerous for you guys i can't hold a weapon use a weapon effectively without the use of my hands so if you can control their hands the more the merrier right one-on-one -on -one is always a difficult situation if there's two three four five of you definitely definitely gonna have a better chance to be successful there if you have a weapon that's not an edged weapon, a gun. If you got a gun, try and control the barrel. If you can get a hold of the barrel, point in a safe direction until you get help to to subdue the person, great. Edged weapon, get distance. You know, you don't want to get in close proximity with somebody with an edged weapon. That's a danger zone. Mm -hmm. But firearms is almost the opposite. You know, if you can get in close and control hands and or the muzzle, that's your best chance. Are there specific things, uh, you know, just a citizen can do to make themselves aware of any potential dangers when they're in a situation, you know, they're at a restaurant or a bank or, uh, you know, a high school basketball game. Are there, are there things, I know there are things that you do, Matt, probably to uh, assess, you know, where you're at and, you know, where uh, risks are and, you know, best way to, you know, get out of a situation if something were to come up. But, um, you know, what do we need to be thinking about when we're in public and, you know, ways to, uh, us keep ourselves safe and our family safe sure you don't you don't want to be hyper paranoid like we are right somebody's always a threat and you got a plan for all of them right like never yeah. sit with your back at the door always yeah. Yeah, it's a thing you know my my girlfriend's learned that 
she she knows. She's like, oh, sorry. Do you want to sit on this side? I say, yep, thank you. <laughs> so you know, it's just one of those things. Um, definitely don't need to be that paranoid. But during the presentation, we talk about situational awareness. Be aware of your surroundings. Understand that the door you came into the restaurant or the movie theater or whatever you're at may not be the way you're able to get out if something happens, whether it's an event like what we're talking about or whether it's a fire drill or any other disaster type response. The way you came in may not be the way out. So challenge people, just look up, survey your surroundings, get a quick plan, play the what if game, right? Mm -hmm. What if this happens? I'm going to do this. As long as you play that game in your head, your mind isn't going to freeze. It, it's already run through that. So it's not a surprise. Um, pay attention to weird behavior. If you see somebody in the middle of the mall with a long trench coat in the middle of July or like, why? Like ask why that's a weird thing, right? Don't just dismiss it. Like pay attention to your intuition. Your intuition is powerful. It's usually trying to warn you about something. So that's my advice is be situationally aware. Look up from your phone or whatever task you got going on for just five, 10 seconds. Play the what if game. If something happens, what are you doing? Where are you going? Where's your safety? And then go back to your business, but pay attention. And if you see something abnormal or what we call strange behavior, listen to your intuition. And if you think it's important enough to say something, say something. We would absolutely rather talk to you, find this person, see what's going on. And maybe it is just weird behavior and they're fine, but at least we now know it's not a danger. Perfect. And yeah, this kind of leads into this. Um, how would someone be able to differentiate between like a real threat and maybe a false alarm? And cause you said like, you know, you don't want to be paranoid, but you definitely want to be aware. And I just want to see like, you know, suddenly false alarms spike and you guys are getting calls for everybody wearing trench coats in July suddenly as a gun. So sure. how would you differentiate between the two? It's hard to give an answer for that because it really is up to the individual. You know, you may see something you're like, ah, oh, that's a little weird, but I don't want to bother the police with that. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. I would err on the side of if you're getting that feeling, if your intuition is telling you there's a problem, just call. It's fine. I mean, we make make fun of you when we go get drinks later, but <laughs> like it, it, it's fine, right? We would rather deal with it and, you know, joke around about it later that, yeah, can you believe we got called on the guy with a cat? Like, <laughs> You prefer on those calls, they just call like the regular line or that's not a... Yeah, so most dispatch centers are going to have, you got 911 emergencies only, right? We don't want to bog down the 911 system. So if it's something that can go into the non-emergency line, mm -hmm. do that. Okay. I am curious, what are the specific characteristics of uh you know somebody that actually perpetrates a, a shooting incident you know and this is important for uh you know maybe us as uh, family members you know recognize you know warning signs with family members or hr people or you know you're in your workplace like, i don't know like what are the things that we really should zero in on and pay attention to and you know maybe report it to the hr person or your supervisor at work like you know, hey, Jim, Joe, Bob, Lucy, they're, you know, they were this way and now they're this way. Like, what are the changes or characteristics that, you know, typically uh, identify somebody that could do or may do violence? Yeah, I mean, like we mentioned a few seconds ago, just keep in mind the extreme changes in behavior. Somebody that was outgoing is now becoming socially isolated. They're becoming obsessed with violence. They're always talking about these events or they're always talking about violence. If they're making threats, you know, if you did something wrong and they make a comment that it'd be better off if they were dead or they could just come back and kill you, like pay attention. That's a huge warning sign. Suicidality in these situations 
is very close to being homicidal. The majority of these people plan on dying in the event. They know that's what the outcome is. So even though they're going in committing violence, their their outcome is suicide, right? They're, they're just doing it with this platform to avenge whatever it is they feel like they've been wronged about. So pay attention to that. Uh, as far as early warning signs within the workplace, same type of thing. If they're threatening coworkers, if you're starting to see a, a change in behavior on their, their work pattern, their product, they're not taking constructive feedback well, they're getting angry constantly, especially if they start making threats, you want to, that's a pre-warning sign for sure. Do they tend to listen to heavy metal music or country music? <laughs> and who is it? <laughs> so that, which, that's which the band specifically? Yeah. <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the hard thing, right? Is there's not a stereotypical profile. Uh, I will say that ninety plus percent of them are Caucasian male, you know, in their twenties to mid forties. So just keep that in mind. But that's a pretty broad spectrum. Yeah. You know, as far as getting into the the profile and it. There's no really rhyme or reason, which isn't why there's a, hey, check all these boxes. That's your warning. That's what this looks mm -hmm. like. You just don't know. Let me follow up with John's question. Um, when elementary and junior high kids will, when do we take them their threats seriously? Because they will maybe parrot something but have nothing behind it, uh, which happened to a situation uh, that I'm familiar with. And so uh, we took it seriously and it, and it turned out to be a nothing burger or whatever, you know? And so, but I think it's that age that they'll tend to just say some, some things that are sort of nonsensical and, and how, you know, do you just always take it serious? You know, you know what I mean? Cause I don't, how do you know if it's, if it's not? Yeah. If it's reported to us, we take it serious. Now here in Utah, there's a few different juvenile justice reform laws and bills, and that's ever changing every single legislative session. Uh, right now, law enforcement and the school's partner to deal with behavioral issues, what we call juvenile behavior. So if there's a threat or something going on, we absolutely will take it serious and either us or the administrators will get involved. Oftentimes the parents are now involved. Mm -hmm. And then at that age, typically the school is taking action, you know, mm -hmm. unless we find something very, very serious, which like you mentioned is usually not the case at that age group, mm -hmm. but you're seeing around the country. I mean, mm -hmm. 12, 13 year olds come to school with guns. I mean, so you never know. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take it all serious. Um, plug for the Utah safety, right? Utah safe app. Like that's anonymous. These kids are always on their, their phones. If they're hearing something at school or their friends are talking about something or, you know, Johnny's got a gun in his backpack, they can report that anonymously without being found out. And that's okay. So I guess I'm unfamiliar. So what, what's, how do they report that anonymously? Yep. So safe Utah app is just a, an app that anybody can get. Okay. There's a function on there to report it. It goes straight to a monitoring group that deals with it and they alert law enforcement, school administrators, and there's a pretty immediate response. There's, I mean, that happens pretty often around, mm -hmm. at least around Salt Lake County. Okay. So. Would that primarily be the duty of like an SRO who would probably go and investigate that or would they send out? It depends. It goes to law enforcement and or the administrator. So, you know, you're getting into a lot of uh, different different laws that we won't get into politics in this podcast, but uh, the SRO's hands are tied in some situations where school administrators have a little more leeway. No okay. We don't want to get into politics, but I am curious how... Uh, prepared public schools are I don't know I mean you hear a lot about uh, shootings in schools and you know of course the media is going to be hyper focused on those kind of stories but how prevalent is it now really in schools and 
um, are drills helping and, and uh, do educators and administrators, are they, uh, is it a serious problem really where, uh, you know, they need to start drilling and, and being really prepared for a potential active shooter event? My advice would be, yes, they need to be prepared because it's possible. Is it the most common place of occurrence? No, business. More than 50% of these incidents are occurring at business. Schools obviously get the media attention and notoriety because of the age group you're dealing with. Like I mentioned here locally, Jordan School District has been phenomenal. They've implemented Avoid and I Defend as part of their violence action plan. Uh, I know for a fact they do lockdown and lockout drills, which I, I believe most schools are doing. I find those horrifying right, and sad. And I mean, I remember doing, we just did earthquake drills and that was scary. Earthquake and fire, right? Earthquake and fire, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I'm like, oh, that really happened? So I can't imagine what my kids are now experiencing. It's know? the day and age we live in. I mean, I was taking my son to school the other day and he said, Dad, today's the day that kid's supposed to come to school with a gun. And, you know, the district had already kind of done their due diligence and put something out to parents saying that the police have investigated and it's a non-issue, this, that, and the other. But he was clearly concerned about it mm-hmm. on the way to school. Mm-hmm. So we talked through it. Told him what the plan is, what he should be doing. Assured him that most likely than not, everything's fine. But that's the day and age they live in. Mm. So should they be prepared? Absolutely. Is there a law that mandates they run a violent intruder drill? No, there's not. Mm. You know, they they do fire, they do earthquake, Mm. and then they get drills of their choice. A lot of them are doing some type of lockdown, lockout drill. But I would say statewide the avoided part of the drill is not typically happening i mean it disrupts school right you're clearing out an entire school in the middle of whatever class interrupts Mm -hmm. their day but is it important yeah because as we talked about in the training and a little bit earlier in the the episode here is you're going to respond under stress exactly like you've either been trained to respond or trained yourself to respond Mm -hmm. you're just that's what's going to happen if you haven't trained at all you haven't thought about it you're going to freeze and that's what's going to get people hurt if an employer wants to conduct a drill in a workplace and they contact, you know, South Jordan Police Department, will you guys come out and make sure they're doing it right? And, and uh, you know, all the, all the things that should be drilled are being drilled and, you know, maybe things that shouldn't be drilled aren't being drilled? Or So here in South Jordan, we absolutely are collaborative with our business partners, with the school, if they contact me and want me to come talk about Grace with them and or help them come up with a violence action plan or set up a drill. We are happy to do that just as part of my role within the department. Uh, We have an emergency manager that helps them with fire, earthquake, different other preparedness drills. Most communities I would think have that. Now, depending on how busy the department is or the city is, you may get varying responses of what their availability might be. But I would encourage if there's communities around the state or businesses, reach out to your local law enforcement and or city, municipality, county, and see what they offer. If they don't offer anything, then you can start looking at other places like we talked about. There's a lot of information online. And do you foresee this as like a growing thing that's actually happening more and more, or do you think it's just more covered by the media? Both. So yes, it's increasing. The numbers are increasing uh, year over year. It's not slowing down, unfortunately. Is it getting more media coverage? Yes. Whether that contributes to part of the problem or not, who knows? You know, I'm sure somebody smarter than me will do some study at some point on how the the viewing of violence and the media's portrayal of violence is adding to this ideology. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but the facts are the numbers are increasing year over year. Yeah. We had kind of a kind of plateaued during COVID where everything else kind of declined. So even though it plateaued, that's good. But the fact that it plateaued and didn't decline like most other things, crime rate, all these other stuff that kind of paused during COVID is concerning, right? It just means it continued to happen. And as soon as COVID cleared, we're right back up. What's your training as a force to deal with active shooter situations and um, prepare for them? Because I think we've seen in instances where it feels like some some forces were more prepared than others. Yeah, and you see that around the country, right, depending on their, their capabilities, their budget, their time constraints. Hmm. Uh, here locally, every police officer in the state that gets certified goes through active shooter response training during posts, peace hmm. officer standards training, their basic academy class. And then department, at least here locally, we try and train our officers in-house um, for sure once a year, if not twice. So we'll, we'll make sure they, they have a sort of classroom portion to understand kind of what we talked about just on a larger scale uh, and what their priorities are, some different tactics. And then we usually will have an actual drill where they're out doing it. You know, they're responding to the incident. They're clearing rooms. We're actually getting prepared in August here locally to have a multi-agency response drill for the rescue task force with our fire partners so we try and get that in at least once if not twice a year and I, I would think most agencies are doing that but like you mentioned around the country especially in the news you see a varying degree of, of responses and what people are doing you have some ones that are terrible and then you got ones that are very very good well and then and it's all personalized too right in some person in an individual force could be uh, I guess better at responding than, than another one, just depending on, like you said, the time in and experience and that kind of thing. Yeah. We're all human. I mentioned yeah. that earlier and you get officers that have been an officer for, you know, 18, 19, 20 years and have never been involved in some type of critical incident. And they may think they're going to respond a certain way, but you never know until it happens. Mm. And you're, you've seen around the country officers freeze, mm -hmm. you know, but then you've seen other officers that just, go to work and do what they're supposed to do and that's ideal that's what we would want all of them to do but again we're not robots so you got to understand that the human element also comes in to police officers even though they've signed up to go into harm's way and stop the violence and we've trained them to do so the the mental thing that hits when that actually happens you just don't know until it's right on you and one of the things you mentioned in your speech was as your heart rate goes up, then your cognitive thinking kind of declines, declines, declines. You get more tunnel vision. So you want to go into that a little bit more and what you can do to kind of alleviate that. Yeah. So when we did that in the training, we talked about kind of resting heart rate around 60 beats per minute, right? As that elevates in milliseconds, not through exercise, because we can get an elevated heart rate and still function through exercise. You know, John's a very fit guy. I'm sure he functions well at an elevated heart rate there. <laughs> That's the yard work. I can move along. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's your resting, John? I, I don't even know. It's, you don't know? Okay. Something, something. See, he's fit. 50 something. Mine's yeah. like 72 ish, right? Yeah. I'm getting chunky. Mine's probably 80 now. Yeah. <laughs> so as your heart rate increases very, very fast, you know, when you start to get it up into the 90 beats per minute range, you start to feel some of the physiological effects. You can feel the, the panic kind of set in, right? Or you're, if you think about it in real world terms, you're frustrated with something and you can almost feel your blood rising, right? Uh, when you start getting into 120 beats, that's when you start losing fine motor skill. You're not getting a key in a door. You're not touching, going through the apps on your phone, trying to find some app to pull up and dial a touchstone phone. Like 
those things kind of go away. You get into large motor skill, large motor function, which your body is reverting from the frontal lobe, which is processing information and making decisions like we do on a normal basis. And it's starting to revert back to kind of the center of your brain, your lizard brain, we called it right in the presentation. And that's about survival. And that's where punch, kick, run, large motor skill comes in. When you go even further, when you start getting up in the 150, 170 range, that's when you start to lose more motor function. You know, I mentioned in the critical incidents I've been involved in, I tend to go to that point where I get tunnel vision. You're hyper-focused on what it is you're trying to deal with. Your body, nothing else is important to it. It's not important at that point. You lose your hearing. You're losing a lot of motor function because you're focusing on whatever it is that you're dealing with. And then you get some people that get up into the 190, 200 beats per minute instantaneously, right? And they just black out. That's what you hear the term fade to black. Uh, they just, they're not functioning. They they lose all motor function. A lot of times the ability to control bowel movement, everything. They're just so overwhelmed with their stress response and the event that's happening. They just don't function. They don't process information. And a way to stay out of that is one, play the what if game. So that it's not, it's not a, such an overwhelming shock to your conscience that your body's like, okay, I'm not dealing with this. I'm shutting down. It's, kind of had a plan it's processed it before it's not new may still go to the tunnel vision auditory exclusion extreme but hopefully you don't black out uh oxygenating your blood is a, a big thing that gets you back into the, where you can lower your heart rate you can start to process information we talked about combat breathing mm-hmm. uh, everyone can do it there's a few like you yoga john you look like you might be a yoga guy I try, but I just can't relax. But yeah, I've done a little bit of yoga. I'm not very good at it, but yeah. The yoga stresses me yeah. out. Yeah. Point of yoga. Uh, I guess my point of that is that I call it combat breathing. and yoga, they call it something else, like relaxed breathing or mm-hmm. yeah. something. But you take a deep breath in through your nose typically, fill your lungs completely two to four seconds, depending on what your capability is. You want to hold your breath two to four seconds. Exhale all of the air out, out your mouth. So in your nose, out your mouth two to four seconds, hold with no air, two to four seconds, and then repeat that process. Do that four or five times or as many times as you can so it'll calm down your heart rate and get you back to where you can process information. So okay. in yoga, it puts you to sleep. Yeah. Unless the stress is yeah, like John. Right. <laughs> and the reason I bring that up actually is because you mentioned that like um, playing the what if game and kind of being one step ahead, like having a preformed plan helps a lot of people out. And you also mentioned that getting creative helps people out. Like when you mentioned the uh, four different rooms, I believe it was the the shooter was going room to room and how the one room who had the most creativity in a sense kind of came out with the least casualties. Yeah. So you're talking about the the Virginia Tech uh, piece that we did. So if you remember, he changed the doors on the first floor, goes up the second floor, starts making his way through classrooms. Mm -hmm. Uh, The classroom you're referring to, they get really creative on how they barricade the door because the door didn't lock in Norris Hall back when that happened. And they get creative in essentially pinning themselves between the lectern that doesn't move in the classroom and the door. And then everyone else is getting out of harm's way, going out the windows. They got really creative on, on how they denied access to where they were at to make sure he couldn't get to them. And so if you're in a room that this one right here has an outward swinging door with a door closer on the top, get creative on how you're going to barricade that or create an obstacle. These people don't tend to spend a lot of time trying to fight through obstacles. They know their time's limited to commit whatever violence they're committing. And so if they're defeated, they tend to move on pretty quick. They may try for a second or two, but then they tend to move on. So get creative. Don't 
think I can't barricade that door. I mean, even if it's just all these tables and chairs and just a deterrent, even though there's a lot of glass in this room, we can still get out of harm's way for the most part. Uh, the other thing you want to remember is these people, they're not tacticians typically. Typically the people that are tactically minded are attacking us as law enforcement. Um, they tend to think they have to see you to hurt you. So keep that in mind. Use those things to your advantage. You know, although I don't want you to hide, you can use concealment to your advantage to still hide and move, right? But don't just hide and stay put. And you want to go a little bit into concealment versus cover because some people who may think they're, you know, in a safe position, it might just be concealment rather than cover. Sure, this is like the the little kid game, right? And you think, well, you can't see me, so you can't hurt me, mm -hmm. right? Well, it's not true. You got to remember that, especially when you're dealing with someone with a, a firearm, most of the things around us, even in this room with sheetrock and wood and even these aluminum framed windows, they don't stop bullets. Bullets are going to go through that. So that's concealment. It hides your, your view. They can't see you, but it's not going to stop bullets. Bullets, you know, are stopped by obviously bulletproof glass, bulletproof walls, which isn't not around a lot unless you're in my world, you know, cinder block, brick, things like that. You see in the movies that cars are stopping all these, but not, not the case. Your car door is not stopping bullets. Your windshield, maybe a round or two, um, just because of the angle and how it's designed. But really your engine block and your axles is about all that's going to stop a bullet in a car. So just keep that in mind, you know, just because you're hiding behind something doesn't mean something isn't coming through it. So It must drive you nuts going to movies and <laughs> no like yeah i mean people outrunning bullets and never get hit i mean stormtroopers in star wars like who taught those guys or girls how to shoot they never hit anything right yeah the, sto the stormtrooper literally never hits anything yeah, yeah. but they get <laughs> tapped by like a little laser thing and they're out they're done they're out yeah um, yeah well yeah. you know that's an interesting thing because people in movies there's there's certain things like that where one punch they're knocked out or you know, one laser blast, they're out. That's not real life. You know, you're not typically knocking somebody out with one punch. If you're, if you're shot and you know you've been shot, you can survive, but you got to have the right mindset. You got, you can't think because you're shot in the arm, you're going to die. If, if you're shot and you're aware you've been shot and you can stop the bleeding, you can survive, especially here locally in the Wasatch Front. I mean, a trauma one center, they call it the golden hour in the medical world. You're, you're within a, an hour to a trauma surgeon pretty much anywhere in the Wasatch front. So just keep that in mind. So if you can stop the bleeding, typically they can save your life. So just be aware of that. Well, yeah, people say in the movies and they think it's true. And I will say it's a bit amusing when I met like at a, at a high school soccer game and two dads are getting into it until they, you know, and it, it comes to fisticuffs until they realize that, oh, I'm not ready for this. Like 30 seconds into it, they're best friends because they're just winded and tired. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I forget, was it Mike Tyson that made the comment that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the yeah. face? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I am curious what you think it means or what uh, you would educate the public about what it means to be a responsible gun owner. And I don't know if this is true every time, but it seems like when we hear about these active shooter events, the shooter got, you know, he stole the gun or uh borrowed it or took it you know out of the family say for you know the gun really wasn't secure and he got access to it uh by means other than you know going and buying it but yeah what is it it just seems like uh there's this 
guns everywhere and people are just like grabbing them from the house and, and doing the thing. And is that the case? And, you know, how do we, uh, you know, as gun owners be more responsible and accountable for our weapons? Yeah. I mean, this is a hot topic, right? So I'll just give you what I do personally mm-hmm. and right, wrong, or indifferent. People can, can do what they do what they may, but uh, as far as the events go, there, there's a wide variety. I mean, yeah, there's some that have had access to guns at home that they've, they've gone. There's others that have just gone and bought them legally at the growth at the store and have stockpiled them. Right. So there's a, there's a wide variety. Uh, myself, if my son's with me for the week, when I get home, my, my gun goes in the safe and that's where it stays. He doesn't know the calm. He doesn't know where the key is. Uh, however, I've also taught him what to do if he comes across a gun. I've taught him how to make sure it's not loaded. I've taught him how it functions, you know, so that what, if he comes what's across- What's the age a, range you should begin those teachings, I guess? So my kid's 12. You know, we started really talking about it about a year ago mm-hmm. um, as far as gun safety, what to do, because if the gun may be safe at my house, I may put my gun in a safe, but his parents or his friend's parents mm. may have it in their nightstand. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if a friend says, hey, come look at my- dad's gun i've taught him okay that's a that's a no-no like mm-hmm. you tell him no you leave mm-hmm. um if for some reason the gun does come out you you let it be you don't touch it we don't mess around we're not show and tell so even if your friend tells you it's a, a bb gun or an airsoft gun you know we talk about the gun safety rules number one all guns are always loaded even though somebody gives you a gun and says hey it's unloaded check it out nope it's a loaded gun until you make sure it's not loaded right the other thing you talk about is don't point the gun at anything you're not willing to kill or destroy because that's the ramifications of playing with guns. And so that would be my advice is, is teach your kids one, how it functions, how to be safe with it, what they do in the event that one comes out, uh, whether that be avoid the situation, you know, deny and get safe, mm-hmm. uh, defend themselves if they have to, or whether that be getting a parent involved and leaving a friend's house or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, I would be, cautious of having guns and ammo in the same place if you're a gun owner that can't afford a big large expensive safe like if you're gonna have guns out just make sure the guns and ammo aren't in the same place right make it more a little more difficult but that's just the safety approaches i take like i said there's a wide wide range of of thoughts and that's a that's a lightning rod for that's a you could do a whole podcast on that for probably a year well, in the presentation you uh, you offered us at the at the safety conference, you talked about a scenario, a series of events where a shooting event was probably deterred because of things that uh, people reported and, and you did. Um, do you mind telling that story again? I think that was a, a good story, a circumstance, and you know how potential tragic events could be avoided. Sure. Yeah. So the the story you're talking about is back when I was running investigations as the sergeant here, I had a lady stop me when I was coming back from lunch and, you know, usually they're asking for directions somewhere. They got, uh, can you sign my fix it ticket question or, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, so she stops me and she wants to tell me about this, this guy she was an acquaintance with that used to coach her son in baseball and his behavior started to change. And she was seeing that through social media again, some broadcasts like we talked about. He was starting to change his appearance. He, you know, was a normally clean-cut guy and was into sports and coaching and different things. He starts to grow out his hair. You know, he grows a beard, which no problem, like makeup for men, right? Yeah, you guys know. You guys know. <laughs> makeup women, for men. I don't think I've ever. Women get to wear makeup. We get beards. You know. Yep. So. 
And, but for him, that wasn't normal. That was abnormal behavior to her. So the post he had made before she stops me, it was about 20 minutes prior to her stopping me. He was dressed in full camo, had these clear shooting glasses on and his, his comment in his post was the storm's coming with the bang, bang emojis, which to me, that's not a normal phrase that people post wearing. Yeah, like full he's camo. not talking about the weather. Not talking about the weather. Yeah. yeah. There's no, there's no rain clouds in his picture, mm -hmm. right? Wrong emoji. And her comment was, he's not a hunter. He doesn't, there's no reason he should be in camo or doing what he's doing. I'm, I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. It's all right. Great. So I get her information, you know, I go back to my office and we do some super secret government things and <laughs> I, I find out that he's not here. Robert local. De Niro walks in. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The CIA shows up, you know, yeah. actually almost, but I find out he's not here locally. I find out he's based at least what I can find somewhere near Atlanta, Georgia. So I call Atlanta PD, uh, get somebody on the phone that clearly has some, some pull and give them the message and I go about my day. I don't think anything of it. Right. So then the next morning I come into work and I got a message on the phone from the joint terrorism task force with the FBI out of the Atlanta field office. And like I mentioned in the presentation, when the FBI leaves you a message, call them back. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't write that down, yep. Van Wilder, you're going to want to write that down. Yeah. I mean, if you don't call them back, they tend to come find you. Yeah. you know? So just yeah. call them back. Or don't Very find out what happens, but they're going to yeah. like it. Yeah. Just call them back. So I call them back. I give them the information they want. And that's where the story used to end. But a few years ago, running investigations now as a division commander, I had the opportunity to meet with the FBI field office here locally on a, on a separate incident with some information they were dealing with. And I was joking around with them about, you know, I tell this story and I don't know the ending and was kind of poking them about how they don't share information unless we, they need us, you know. <laughs> and one of the guys sitting in the room, he's like, I know the end of that story. I was like, really? I'd love to love to hear it. And he said, yeah. So I was based in Atlanta when that came in, and we had kind of been watching this guy. And we get that call that comes in, and so we go track him down. And apparently he was on his way to D.C. with a car full of weapons. And had I think it was like Grand Central Station or something that he was had his, maybe didn't like trains or something. I don't know <laughs> what his deal was, but I never really heard. But does the Does the lady know that she prevented something? You know, I don't know if I ever got back to her. Mm -hmm. or, I mean, she obviously had talked to Atlanta and then mm -hmm. the Joint Terrorism Task Force mm -hmm. there. I don't know what information they gave her, but it's a, a good example that someone in South Jordan, Utah, stops a local cop, gives us some information that, again, her intuition said is not normal for this person, and just pulling on the string and following up on things mm -hmm. prevents a possible in incident on the other side of the country. Mm -hmm. So. Wow. Well, she's listening. Thank you very much. She might be a subscriber to the <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. If she's sure here, she if she's here, <laughs> thank you very much. You made a difference. Her perspective is probably wild though. She's like, yeah, stop this guy. Next thing you know, the FBI is at my front door asking me questions <laughs> about where the guy is, who he is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just one of those things that when you tip the right person off that says some things in motion and you just never know. I had butterfly that, effect. I came home from elementary, uh, junior high, I think one day. And uh, there was, what are they, Crowns, the car, the old oh, Crown Vic, Crown yeah, Vic's, yeah, you know, yeah. was in my driveway. I'm like, okay, weird. Two, two older gentlemen in my, in, uh, in my, didn't know them. And uh, they had big antennas and they, they sort of looked at me and said, we're using your, your bushes to hot, to basically hide, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was, I was so freaked out. I didn't, but they were, 
I, I was like, okay. And I went in the house. I'm like, mom, like what's going on out here? You know? And she's like, don't say anything. They'll leave when they're done. I don't never, know. I don't know never, what it was. Never, never saw him. Never saw him. Sounds like yeah, surveillance yeah, to yeah. me. Yeah. You know, now we just put a camera up on a pole and you yeah, think so it's a much power box. Yeah. You have drones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you just, you have no idea that yeah. the van parked down the street has seven cameras watching oh, you, you know? Yeah. Oh, now I'm curious. How has the uh, law enforcement profession evolved in the 20 years you've been in it? What are, what are some of the, the good advances that uh, you guys have made to help keep the public safe? Yeah. Technology is a big one. You know, of course, surveillance has gotten easier based on the things we just kind of joked around about, but you know, the surveillance cameras and the ability to, to get eyes on an incident without putting people in harm's way has been huge. We're kind of on the forefront here. I would, I would dare say we have probably one of the most comprehensive drone programs probably in the state as far as the law enforcement agency goes. Uh, even in the tactical world with the South Valley SWAT team, we use drones to, to go in and clear homes or do different things that in the past you'd have to send people into and put them in possible harm's way. And so that's been huge. That's been so a you game just changer. B- break a do- bust a door down and then send the drone in. Send a drone in. That's yeah. rad. Or before you had to send a cop Team. with a vest and yeah. a gun and yeah. chances of them getting hurt or somebody else getting hurt. You know, we can figure out what we have and what's going on and huh. make a plan from there. So that's been a game changer. Um, you know, outside of that, equipment has changed quite a bit. The ability for you know ballistic protection and body cameras. There's a wide variety of opinions i'm a proponent i think it's been huge as far as protecting us from liability and what's happening Mm because it used to just be your word against mine Mm -hmm. right yeah i guess i guess what would be the argument against exactly that's my point yeah Yeah. so you know i'm not doing anything or shouldn't be doing anything that i don't want you to see so why not be transparent about it Mm -hmm. right so we're a proponent of that here for sure and then just some of the experiences that we have learned nationally from law enforcement from others' mistakes, you know, different agencies that end up with these catalyst events and how we approach things. You know, the tactical situation with mental health is, has changed. We used to go force issues and try and save people from themselves. And what we've learned is either they end up still killing themselves because the pressure's on or we end up killing them, right, because we're in harm's way. Well, that's silly. Like, why would we do that? So we offer resources. We get mental health officials involved and we try and support, and as long as nobody else is in harm's way, we'll let them calm down. We're not going to go force the issue anymore. So really just how we've evolved in response to things, at least here locally. Now, as you see, different parts of the country are at varying levels. Mm-hmm. But here locally, I would say we're pretty progressive. So if you remember post-Ferguson, the Obama administration came out with a 21st century policing report and all these pillars of recommendations that law enforcement should be implementing and essentially how you should be policing. Uh, When that came out, we found we had already been doing almost all of them unless we didn't have the program they were recommending. And then even further back, you talk about, you know, Sir Robert Pill, who is kind of the founder of modern policing. And he talks about a few of his principles of the public or the police and the police or the public. You as the public get to decide how you're policed. Now you go through that in a legal way through legislative change and laws and different things. But if the state legislator decides speeding is not a problem anymore, then who are we to continue to try and enforce it? Right. You as the public get to make those decisions. So, so, so is it, so the state and then the County and then does each city municipality, can they differ as well? 
So you can have ordinances that kind of add on to the state code, if that makes sense. Okay. And, and you can do a few different things. Like you can have an ordinance that your speed limit in an alley is 15 miles an hour, where the state doesn't really dictate that, right? The state mm. dictates roadways or highways. So you can get down into county ordinances and city ordinances, if that makes sense. Okay. So, But mostly but, it's the state? So most of the time, a criminal and or traffic law is state enforced. But there's okay. different, like your, you know, the noise ordinance, right? Mm -hmm. People, that's not a state crime. Mm -hmm. The state crime would be like a disturbing the peace thing or disorderly conduct, right? Mm -hmm. But at the local level, you'll hear about a noise ordinance. That's usually a county enforcement. It's actually through the health department here in Salt Lake mm -hmm. County. The health department is who dictates the, the noise ordinance. Mm -hmm. So there's different things that you can break down and each city or municipality can kind of add on if they want. So you, you do have that piece. I'm curious how, how recruiting new police officers is. I remember as a young post-cadet, you know, you'd have one uh, position open up at a city or a county and you would get, you know, 500 applicants for one job. Is that still the case now? Are there still a lot of uh, people out there that want to be police officers? But wait, before, before you answer that, my son was a police officer for Halloween. He's eight and he got, he got a lot of good comments on Halloween this last year. So it was awesome. awesome walking. Yeah. yeah. I'll yeah. give you some swag before you leave. Remind me. <laughs> oh, okay, sweet, perfect. <laughs> so to answer that, no, it's not as prevalent as it was even back when I started in '04. I remember testing for agencies, and there's 400 people there taking a PT test. Right. Um, we have consistently, and it, it depends on how often you're testing and how big of a roster you're trying to build. But you know, we have 20, maybe 30 people showing up for multiple positions. So it's definitely harder, you know, and recruitment and retention is difficult. The retirement's changed a little bit. You know, these officers are now having to do 25 years to get a pension that people in my are doing 20 years for. And, and this generational changes, you know, this new generation tends to be willing to change jobs and change careers. And so you can get into a huge discussion just on the difference mm -hmm. between Gen X, millennials, and whatever it is now, Z, right? I mean... They just have different yeah. things that are important to them. Um, at least locally here in Salt Lake County, the, the wage increase that is probably long overdue is, has helped with that. I mean, our officers make pretty good money these days, but it's still a dangerous job, you know, and the media doesn't help necessarily when they tend to villainize us at varying degrees. Local media is good. You know, I don't want to say our local media is not. Utah is very supportive. But nationwide, when you start hearing these incidents and kind of the, a narrative of law enforcement is bad, that affects the, re the pool for recruitment. You know, mm -hmm. people don't want to get into a job where they're disliked or hated. So mm -hmm. it's been tough, but, you know, we'll keep at it. And fortunately, there's still some good men and women that are nobly willing to step up and put on the uniform and a badge and go out and put themselves in harm's way. Would you say training's harder now than it was 20 years ago? Or, I mean, can they, is the PT run like, what is it now? Back then I was like a mile and a half and I feel like you had to run it fairly fast. Yeah, it's changed. I don't know what the currents, yeah, that's what it was back in the day. It's changed a little bit. Um, I'm not sure what the current standard is, but it has changed. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I don't know if I would say the training's necessarily got harder. It's definitely got more comprehensive, I would say. Well, it sounds like there could be some opportunity mm -hmm. for the, 
you know, for the video game aficionado when it comes to those, uh, those flying drones or the drones that go into the... Well, I'm telling you, my, my brother-in-law is a goose, like the backseat driver in the, in the Navy, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. he's a weapons guy. Uh-huh. And I asked him, I'm like, cause like, you know, like, you're kind of a knucklehead, you know, how did you get this job? And he goes, it was gaming because I'm really good at it. And so he can do those. The weaponry in the back seat so so he was able to you can't you can use it for good yeah. <laughs> to get yeah. gain employment apparently <laughs> yeah i mean that yeah that whole industry is changing right i mean you yeah. talk about the military drone program different drone program than ours but you have some larger agencies you know the new york cities the nypds of the world that i mean they have full-on drone divisions and units and hmm. like it's just when do you crazy. get your battle your battle bots your battle droids <laughs> well, we do have robots, yeah. but they are, they're not for battle. Okay. <laughs> they, they are defensive, right? Yeah. So, Well, it's kind of turned into a, uh, an ask a cop hour, so I hope you don't mind. But, it's okay. It's good. Uh, 25 years, and then you can retire. So you get some officers probably that, you know, maybe started when they're in their early 20s and could retire, you know, before they're 50 or at 50. Like, what do, uh, what do you want to do when you retire, Matt? Like, what do officers do when, you know, they've hit 25 years? I mean, it's too young to retire, retire, but where do you go after a career, a 25-year career in law enforcement? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. So I'm in the, I'm actually in the 20-year program, and I just started year 20. So we'll see as I, I get closer. I mean, I enjoy what I'm doing now. South Jordan treats me well. You know, I, I make a, a good living at this point. So unless there's kind of a unicorn job that shows up that would lure me away. I don't, I may stay longer than that. I, I've thought about, I really enjoy, you know, teaching the public and, and helping and, and presenting. And if I could do that outside of wearing a uniform and a badge, I may consider that. Um, the other thing I've thought of is just going into the corporate world or thought about doing something completely different. You know, I have, had the fortunate opportunity to educate myself and hold a couple master's degrees. And so I may just go do something. Mm. I go sell pharmaceuticals or something like, I don't know. Cybersecurity. <laughs> <laughs> Ex-athletes who sell pharmaceuticals tend to do well. They, I've, I've they heard. slay it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's true. Yeah. A really good friend of mine has made a very good living doing that. So. Yeah. Talk about cybersecurity at the conference. You do that, maybe digital forensics. Yeah. I don't know if I'm an IT guy. Um, you know, I've been <laughs> as an administrator here sitting behind a computer now for the last almost eight years. And mm-hmm. I don't know if, if I want to go sit behind a computer for my second career as well. Well, to lighten it up a little bit, we have in our office, you know, traffic. Uh, I've joked before that the worst drivers in Utah, because I am the expert, uh, the worst drivers, <laughs> any make and model. <laughs> But they tend to have the Aggie logo on their license plate. Mm. And the second worst are uh, Subaru <laughs> drivers with the coexist sticker. Is there any truth to any of that, you think? The, yeah. is it, what's the science behind that? Is it Just uh, observation. Observation, observation okay. and assessment. Dodge okay. Ram's my top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't have any data points on that, so I don't know. I mean... You're up north, so you probably have a, a few more with the Aggie logo on their car than, than we do down here. So I, I don't know about that. Um, you know, I, I've seen a wide variety of, of bad drivers, especially when I was a motor officer, and there there's really no rhyme or reason. I mean, it really comes down to people just don't pay attention. They get distracted. 
you should go into politics. That's a very <laughs> politically safe answer. Yeah. He, doesn't very want good. His, he doesn't want this, you know, neighbor that went to Utah State to come knock on. Yeah. That's a good question. I think my neighbor, I, I saw my neighbor at a Utah Weber State game, actually. Hmm. Speaking of Weber State, yeah. um, I think her, his brother-in-law or something was a quarterback a couple years ago. So hmm. I don't know. What, Weber? Uh-huh. I don't know what his affiliation is. I feel like we're forgetting something. Uh, Matt, is there anything that you would like to say, something we didn't mm-hmm. cover that, you know, the public, employers, or, uh, um, you know, any of us would need or, or want to know when it comes to uh, being safe in our workplaces, at home, you know, recreating, you know, just to stay safe from, uh, you know, a, a, a public shooting event or an active shooter event? Yeah, so I guess I would just reiterate, be situationally aware, right? Play the what-if game understand that the environment you're in may change and the way you got there, the plan you have in your head may not work. So be aware that the outdoors is different. Your toolbox is going to get diminished. You know, you may not be able to deny access in an open field environment. So your only option might be to avoid or possibly defend depending on how close you are to it. But if you just remember the avoid and I defend model, think about it, think about what that looks like. It, It is effective. We've seen in varying degrees that with these incidents around the country it's been effective so just keep that in mind the defend is a personal decision of whether you're going to put yourself in harm's way or not and what your capabilities are we talked about in the, the presentation you know you don't have to be a mma ufc like expertly trained person the more the merrier control the hands control the weapon all right well very good this has been uh the utah safety council uh, speaking up for safety podcast you know, we put these shows out sporadically, but, um, you know, Brandon's been patient with us and it's been an honor to come out here to Daybreak in South Jordan City to speak with Lieutenant Matt Pennington. Matt, it's been an honor and a pleasure, and uh, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thanks, Thanks. Good job, Stone.